This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Sam Chandon. Welcome back to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Well, in a recent opinion piece in Governing Magazine, Professor Stephen Pedigo and Arya Bendix of NYU's Shack Institute Urban Lab write about the role of businesses in their local communities. Uh, Stephen gives the examples of Bank of America, Citigroup, and Prudential as firms that are taking some role uh, as in, in engaging actively uh, in uh, providing some community services. He also gives the example of Seattle, where the city council recently attempted to pass a head tax on large businesses to fund affordable housing investment. The city council approved the tax, but ultimately bowed to pressure from Amazon, forcing a repeal. How can cities and businesses play nice, and where is the line between holding businesses accountable and remaining business-friendly? With me to discuss just that is NYU's Stephen Pedigo. Stephen, thanks for coming back to the program. Sam, great to uh, be with you. Thanks for having me again. Tell me a little bit about, you know, to set the stage, what was this head tax in Seattle? What motivated it? Yeah, well, I think I think the thing that really motivated the issue with the head tax in Amazon uh, in Seattle was the H2Q process, right? The as many of your listeners may know, uh, Amazon put out a bid to think about a second location uh, across the country in 238 cities engaged, um, and then the Seattle. I think the city of Seattle was sort of took a step back and said, "Whoa, what about us? What's happening? Why are you thinking about uh, you know moving a significant part of your workforce out of the city or not building up your presence here?" Given that we've done a lot with you. Uh, you've been a big player in our city. And with that, we've seen some externalities because of your presence, you know, rising housing issues, uh, rising homeless issues, things that, that uh, you know, that really have, have created a city that is that is um, seeing more tra- traffic than ever before. And so I think what, what you saw in Seattle was the city council saying uh, a little bit of a stand-up to Amazon to say, look, if, if you're not going to be a community player uh, in our community, uh, we're going to hold you accountable. And, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, obviously, they bowed back and did not end up doing the tax and the tax uh, um, isn't going to happen. Uh, but it, it raises a very interesting question about this question of, like, what is the role of business in communities today? And how do how should businesses and communities be playing to, uh, a role in terms of sort of creating this shared value with each other? So when we look at you know other cities along the West Coast, perhaps um, you know you can think of you know an area uh, you know in the you can think of the Bay Area. You know, it, it, are, are we seeing uh, you know places like San Jose you know adopt similar measures or take similar strategies? Where you know I've seen you know some reports on what you know Apple's uh, new uh, new headquarters is doing you know to to local land and house prices. Uh, it seems extraordinary. Uh, just you know the what's happening in some of these markets. Uh, are, are we seeing other communities sort of you know, take a similar approach? Yeah, look, I mean, in November, uh, the residents of Mountain View, Google's hometown, um, is going to, uh, there's a ballot on the measure for us to think about uh, a tax, of taxing employers with, uh, with more than 30 employees. And a lot of folks are saying this is the Google tax. Again, I think it's this question of raising this, uh, this really key issue. And that is, you know, should businesses be playing a greater role as we think about affordability? And, you know, you point to the, the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, right, where we know that housing values are extraordinarily expensive. Um, and a lot of that being driven by the presence of tech companies and a lot of longtime residents um, are putting pressures on uh, political leaders and community leaders to say, look, you need to 
step up and hold these businesses accountable to help us deal with some of these externality issues. It's a very interesting time. I mean, just be thinking about economic development and business development or even real estate development in this sort of push to think about equity and inclusion. And so, you know, I think some of our work at the Urban Lab, as you know, has been uh, addressing, trying to address these issues, raising some best, trying to address, you know, what are uh, organizations that are doing some interesting work to sort of think about this quote unquote development and sort of, of, of inclusive prosperity. You know, and it, it's not even, what's interesting, it's not just even West Coast cities that are doing this. I mean, one of the most interesting examples for me about this idea of inclusive prosperity, as we noted in the piece, was Alexandria, Virginia, uh, which is a little town, a little small community for most of the listeners probably know it's outside of Washington, D.C. It's a very wonderful place to visit, to have dinner and walk their main street. And one of the things that they have just recently passed is a as a restaurant tax on on um, uh, folks that will go out to dinner. They're going to raise the, the restaurant tax by by a percentage, um, and again, trying to hopefully take those dollars and funnel in, into affordable housing. I mean, we can go down this just down the uh, the the uh, quarter to Philadelphia. Um, as you know, Philadelphia has it traditionally has not been an overly expensive city along the Eastern Seaboard when you compare it to its peers. But that, as, uh, the Philadelphia City Council just recently uh, posed a, a tax on developers that will be doing industrial, commercial, and residential development um, in, a neat, uh, in an effort to, uh, to fund this question of, of affordable housing. So I think what's interesting um, is we've seen a shift in this narrative, and that shift is this, is that for a long time we thought about businesses and, and developers as creating uh, economic value and creating jobs. And now many communities are coming back to say, okay, now that you've done this job creation, now that we've created these knowledge-based jobs, we've improved some of the cities, how are you going to help us um, address uh, some of these externality issues of affordability and, you know, the displacement issues that come with gentrification? Transit is a big one, as you know. Um, and so this is, this is an interesting time to be thinking about investment in our communities. So how does the city respond then to a business that simply says, this is another tax and its impact is to make your location less attractive uh, to me to you know, locate my headquarters? Uh, I'm simply going to go somewhere else. And they may, right? I mean, they absolutely may. I mean, this is, this is, um, this is, the, this is I think, um, a bit of the, uh, the game of chicken with both, uh, with both companies and businesses, and, and they may absolutely do that. I think the more interesting question and I think what we will start to see, because look, I mean, for companies to pick up and move, right, to make a major corporate relocation, that's a big deal, right? That's a that's a heavy expense. It's a costly expense in from in terms of talent and uh, and talent and your workforce, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of either you're going to move talent or you're going to have to attract new new talent, build relationships, suppliers, all those types of things. I think what we're going to start to see, and what I hope we start to see, um, is more companies sort of stepping up. To, uh, to play a greater role in their communities. You know, we talked about the Google tax earlier. I think, what's it, you know, Google has done some uh, – one of the things that Google is doing in San Jose, as you know, is the redevelopment uh, around uh, the, the transit station there in, in downtown San Jose is working with the city of San Jose to think about uh, what is the what, – what can be done in terms of affordable housing, what can be done in terms of providing some public and some common spaces. So even some of these larger technology-based companies that, that are – maybe becoming sort of a bit of a poster child for this, this rising inequality. Some of them are stepping up to the plate uh, to, do, to do certain things like this um, as well. Um, and the last thing I would say about this is, is you know, in, in terms of this, is there is a business opportunity here. You know, I, I look at um, some of the work that, you know, a, com- a development company 
RxR Realty, as you know, has a large presence um, in New York. One of the, the things that they are doing with New Rochelle um, in New York, the redevelopment of downtown New Rochelle, a large opportunity, obviously, for that development firm, but working with the city to think about and the community and the residents to go through the rezoning process, to go through a community engagement process, to ask the questions about what's needed in terms of public amenities, what's needed in terms of the amount of public housing. There can, this can be done in the uh, true sense of a public-private partnership, but it's about getting both government and city officials and, and, and really some of these major employers and, and, and developers to come to the table together to have those conversations. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Professor Stephen Pedigo, Director of the Urban Lab at NYU's Shack Institute. We're talking about, in particular, some of the attempts by cities to impose a head tax on very large companies that are sufficient in scale that they're, you know, they're impacting things like uh, the availability of housing. Um, Stephen, you've described uh, you know this idea of, you know, well, you've given the example of RxR and others that are you know, working in the community as a business strategy you know if the, the if, if there's sort of this growing concern in cities around the country around you know the impact of businesses you know this question of well what is their role in contributing um you know to uh, you know to, to to local outcomes perhaps it's a good business strategy to say hey let's preempt this let's preempt the possibility of a google tax and proactively say hey how are we going to engage the community how are we going to be a good local citizen Absolutely right. I mean, look at, I mean, just down the road from New York City, where you and I are both today, uh, what Prudential has done in Newark, right? I mean, I think if you look at, if I was to think about uh, some of these larger corporate companies actually coming to play and actually sort of thinking about themselves as anchor-based institutions, you know, in the past, it had been the idea that universities and healthcare facilities and cultural facilities sort of adopted that role. But some corporates like Prudential um, has said, look, we are an anchor in the city of Newark. The, the success of our city is vital for us on many roads, you know, suppliers, a talent attraction. It is we want to have a thriving community, a thriving, a thriving economy in Newark. And so a lot of the work that has been led by the revitalization of downtown Newark, and believe me, there's a ways to go, um, has been led um, through organization, through the work of the Prudential Foundation, working with, you know, the, the Newark Alliance and the mayor's office there to think about, um, you know, how they build this, this question of shared development. I absolutely believe that it is going to be very critical for many of these uh, large-scale businesses to do this. And what's interesting is that as you think about economic development across the country over time, look, many, many companies have done this for a long time. Our banks have done this. Our community foundations have done this. Uh, many of our sort of major employers, but it is some of these newer companies, right? Like the, um, like particularly uh, the technology-based companies, um, which are, I think, sort of as they as they have grown up, figured. I mean, figuratively, obviously the businesses have matured and they're quite successful, and some have some of the largest market cap in the, in the country, in the world, frankly. They're having to grow up into this idea of understanding what does it mean to be true sort of corporate citizens. And so for many of these technology-based companies, they're having to sort of figure out what that means. And it's a tough time to do it because there's pressures from our cities that are saying, look, we have to address these externality issues. We cannot continue um, to lose, um, you know, the, the, the authenticity the, the livelihood of many of our residents who continue to get pushed back again, as I, as I think you and I, as I've been on your program and talked about before, we're living in a time where our cities, the revitalization of urban cores is a fantastic thing. But, man, it's making uh, our cities uh, this contested battle for space and equity and, 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 
it will require um, businesses to step up, particularly here in the United States, as you know, as the federal government has really, in a sense, just um, evacu- uh, sort of taken a huge step back in terms of doing any development uh, or any uh, economic development policies or development policies for our cities. So when we're looking at sort of you know, businesses becoming more engaged, you know, many cities sort of you're really beginning to demand that of of their large businesses. How does that square with, on the other hand, something like Amazon HQ2, where essentially you've got a very large company that's setting up a beauty pageant, and, and cities are you know falling over themselves to say we'll make it easier for you, we'll require less of you, uh, you know we're we're going to really do everything we can to accommodate you, uh, just just come here. And I would say shame on you, cities and officials and economic developers, because really, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, the question, in fact, I think I had a, had a piece that my colleague Ari and I wrote, um, and there's been several other pieces like this, asking the question that if you are a city government or city officials or an economic development or the government, the mayor, whoever you are, do you really want to win this Amazon project? Um, uh, the, do you really want to win the Amazon project with no sort of strings attached on what you expect from Amazon, right? I mean, I think if you're thinking about this in terms of the, imagine, right, we're talking 50,000 new employees, we're talking about major major investment, lots of things that both the city and Amazon will have to do to make this work. But with that will come traffic, congestion, affordability, maybe even the constraining of some of your, your current innovation clusters already are uh, industries that are in your city. So, the, you know, if you are the city officials, you, you don't want to just be giving, handing over the, the checkbook or sort of handing over a blank check to Amazon. You've got to have some, uh, some thoughts on what will Amazon do? What will these major companies do to help you really create a you know, thriving community that is inclusive, that thinks about equity, that addresses all these, these issues that we know our cities are facing? Because if not, the big issue will be is that in you know, 10, 15 years, once you've won the Amazon bid, will you come back and have some buyer's regret? Look, I think there are many people in Seattle that understand what Amazon has done for uh, the market there. Um, but there, man, there are some real challenges in Seattle because of the presence of a major company like Amazon. You know, if you look at affordability on a metropolitan level, Seattle is one of the most expensive, most unaffordable metropolitan areas in the country. They've got traffic. They've got a rising homeless population. Um, they've got congestion like you've not like uh, that we would that you would expect um, outside of New York. And so there is these issues about livability. Um, and that's really, for me, where we come back to think about what is economic development today, right? And what is development for our communities today? It comes back to this question of quality of life, quality of place, and livability. And yet, and yet Stephen, and yet we have cities, I think you said 238, you know, across the country, really sort of making you know, a Herculean effort to, to win Amazon's business. Is there a political reality here where a mayor says, if I win Amazon HQ2, I'm going to be a hero in this town, and that'll take me to the next level of my career, whether it's the governor's office or somewhere else? Um, and that really sort of you know, driving what we see happening, because surely within these 238 cities, there are folks who understand uh, you know, the issues that you're raising and for, and, you know, for whom these issues are really going to resonate. That's right, Sam. I think that is absolutely some of, uh, some of this is that politics drives this a bit, right? I mean, it is about um, it is about the big win sometimes, and not thinking about the challenges of this. But I do think that if you are, you know, and many of the city's officials and mayors are, are, are pragmatic um, and um, have come to the, uh, and as you talk to them off the record across the country, some of them understand this and know that 
look, they can't just write, again, a blank check for Amazon. There's got to be some way to build some shared value or it's not going to be, you know, the, the most ideal situation for the communities. So we've got this issues, uh, you know, these issues of congestion, incredibly high house prices, you know, really sort of you know, being concentrated in you know, our biggest and sort of, you know, most high profile cities. Uh, reading some of your comments in Slate today, uh, you're describing a scenario where uh, we are seeing or beginning to see uh, people make different location choices. And actually, there's uh, the, you know, that smaller town um, is suddenly proving to be a little bit more attractive. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this was a fun art, uh, a fun, uh, fun piece in Slate where we were looking at this role of what's happening for lots of talent that are not sort of tied down to, to companies or businesses. You know, this question of, of, of freelance talent. And what one of the things that's interesting is that if you look at some of the data, is that you do see the rise of some of these second and third tier cities across the country. Um, you know, like the Salt Lakes, uh, the Portlands, the Bozeman, Montana's, you know, the Lynchburg, Virginias, the place, some of the places. Um, that um, are very small but have created a really interesting quality of place in terms of walkability of their downtowns, restaurants, amenities. Um, and a lot of talent are saying, look, um, you know, I'm done with the affordability issues. I'm tired of having maybe three uh, roommates. Or if I'm a, a, a family that's got a kid or a, a child, I need more room and more space. And, look, we can have just as much great quality of life and, and urban life and a walkability and all those things that come a lot of times with, as we think that come with large cities. And we can do that in smaller communities at a more affordable rate. So in my mind, you know, in a sense, it's a, it's a bit of a win-win, right? I mean, I think if you think for smaller cities, a lot of places are seeing this revival of their communities. And for me, um, that's one of the fun things about the revival of sort of the cities across the United States is that we are seeing this rebirth of not just our big cities, but our second and third tier cities. And, you know, the other flip side of that is is that uh, for a lot of large major cities, we'll say, you know, like the New Yorks or the San Francisco's or the Seattle's, one of the things that we know is that as people even make some of those folks that make those exits, um, a lot of times that talent is instantly replaced because those large, quote unquote, superstar cities continue to be magnets for cities. So, you know, I think well, let me ask you a question a- about this, though. Yeah. Right. So you're describing moving to a secondary city. You're being able to have you know great quality of life, you know, access to amenities, all at a more affordable price you know if i were to say you know new york city uh, we are done uh, and i pack up i head to bozeman uh, which i think one of the markets you mentioned the, yeah. the the issue i think for a lot of people becomes and and tell me sort of you know, what's happening on the business side of this i can go there and get all of those things but the critical thing that i need uh, is also a job so That's what are right. people doing so, in those towns are businesses yeah, also so first moving we'll wear a lot of patagonia if you go to bozeman Montana. <laughs> okay uh, <laughs> but no I think what, that's a very good question, Sam. And I think one of the things is that as you think about some of these relocations to smaller cities, one of the things that, it, and as you know, I do a lot of some advising work, and one of the things that I tell small cities all the time is that you have to be very clear about what your industry sectors are and what your business's opportunities are. So, for instance, if you are a biochemist or maybe you work in pharmaceuticals, Bozeman, Montana may not be the right place for you. However, um, a little town like uh, Trenton, New Jersey, or, or Princeton, or South Orange, New Jersey, where I, uh, where I live, could be an ideal place for you because they have a lot of pharmaceutical places here, and there's lots, a lot of stars, strong market opportunities that are tied to this. So there's two fronts to this, I think. One is that if you are the talent or if you are the person that is making this location decision, you have to be very clear about what your market opportunities are in those cities. And, and just as businesses do, and this is one of the things I tell my students all the time, is that just as businesses make site location decisions and know exactly where they're going to pick and operate 
we as individuals have to do that as well. We have to make a pragmatic location decision. And on the flip side of that, small communities um, also have to be very clear about marketing, communicating, and nurturing what they know to be their key competitive advantages if they're wanting to create this opportunity to attract some of the specific types of workforce or talent into their communities. So we have just a few minutes left. I want to uh, switch gears a little bit. Uh, you recently moderated a talk at Google on technology and the urban environment. What are the technologies today that you would say are having the biggest impact on the way that we live in cities? Yeah, that's a great one. I think the, obviously the first is the rising of, of, of First of all, I think thinking about the city as a platform of innovation, my colleague Richard Florida, who's also a fellow at the lab, as you know, has written a lot about this idea of, of, of the city as a platform for innovation. Um, and in fact, if it's, if he did has a terrific post recently in City Lab that looked at the valuation of, uh, of startups, particularly urban startups, and some of them are ranking amongst the top 10 uh, most valuable startups in the country, uh, excuse me, in the world. And a lot of those are being tied to uh, servicing the challenges and the issues that we face in our cities. And obviously the one, you know, the ones that I think that everyone is sort of can understand right now is that's impacting our life today is this, is the rise of ride sharing for good or for bad, right? For good for many of us is that it creates lots of different opportunities in terms of thinking about our transit options. It's providing access for folks for that last mile, which we know that Lyft and Uber are doing a lot with transit organizations. Again, those public partnerships are thinking about how they deliver that service. Um, but on the flip side of that, right, we know that it's disrupting an industry like our, our traditional industry, like the taxi industry, which has put some uh, put some some real pressure. So I think this question of of the right of, 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 of transit and how we're solving some of our transit, that's one thing that technology is doing. Obviously, folks are writing about the rise of, of autonomous vehicles. And, and really, in our cities, this is just sort of getting started. Um, and that is what will the impact will that have as we think about designing and, and working for cities in the future, you know. I do a lot of um, sort of thinking with master plan teams across the country that are doing new scale developments, and we're raising new questions about, do you need as much parking? What does it mean to have ride sharing? What does it mean to have autonomous vehicles? Uh, can we reclaim some of the public space that had been traditionally used around the human-operated automobile back for the public arena? So I think this question of, again, this transit uh, technology along a spectrum is changing us for, 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 for us to think about. The other thing that I would say, and it's a bit more geeky uh, because it's a little bit more people for like me, is this question about how we can use technology um, to think about how we mix uses. And so, in the, you know, in the United States, as you know, as we think about zoning and land uh, uh, and land use, we have very strict use of the way where commercial space is or industrial space or residential space. Some of the things that Sidewalk Labs is doing, which is the subsidiary of, um, of Alphabet, which is obviously owns Google, um, they're doing. They're they are in essentially creating a large uh, innovation district on the waterfront of Toronto. So I'm going to have um, to stop at, you there and say that Stephen, when you come back, let's talk about some of the things that they're doing in Toronto. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. That was Stephen Pedigo, director of the Urban Lab at NYU's Shack Institute of Real Estate. That is all the time we have for today. Thanks to both Stephen and my first guest, Lori Goodman vice president of the Urban Institute and co-director of its Housing Finance Policy Center. Our show will be repeated throughout the week. You can read more about the Real Estate Hour and our other shows and hosts on the SiriusXM website at SiriusXM.com slash Business Radio. The Real Estate Hour is produced by Patty Hall, who's also the program director here at Business Radio. Danielle Bruno has run of the house on the soundboard, and I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks for joining us. 
For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 